For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. One of the things I've learned about leadership is you have to, I guess, pick your battles is what they say. Mm-hmm. Like Sometimes I've, I've found myself more so now than ever before, just even if I want to go do it another way, but they're really adamant on doing it this way. I'm like, well, we'll just do it that way. It's just not, not worth getting into it about how I want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You get to a point where as long as it gets done, yeah, go do it however you want. Go figure it out. I uh, was flying over the Rockies and I was thinking, I was like, I haven't, I haven't skied in two years. I need to get out there mm-hmm. because my, and my brother, he lives in Denver, so he goes skiing every weekend. Oh, yeah. And Denver's overrated for skiing, though. Super, super. Like you have to drive two hours or send traffic for three hours to get there. Yeah. Like, our, we have seven resorts within 30 minutes, mm-hmm. 45 minutes here. It's a, it's a lot easier here. Oh, yeah. So easy. Than Denver. No, in college, me and my brothers would do, we call it the Triangle of Death. So we, we went to school at the U of U. Mm-hmm. We worked here, and then we'd ski every day. Really? And I mean, we, we slept about three hours a night, but <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, usually it was class in the morning, go ski and then come work here. And yeah, it was, so we were skiing hundred plus days a year in, in college. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. We had a great time, but. Chell, he, he grew up here and he had a ski bomb phase. Was, was that one season? Where you just, all you did was, what, snowboard? <laughs> I had that too. I worked at Snowbird for a while. And... You worked up there? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, just for the pass. Yeah. So, yeah, it was like two nights a week. And it, so I, I just worked the bare minimum to get the pass. And so I did that for a year. Then the next year, I was going to grad school. They mm-hmm. asked me to come back. I said, I can't do it. But I'm get my MBA. And the guy said, look, I'll let you do it one night a week. You work the hours you want. And you just come up after class and I'd go pick up all the signs and you know, oh. kind of clean up the, all the parking stuff. Yeah. And he's like, look, that's one night a week. I don't have to worry about someone showing up high or drunk. So there's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah so he's like, I will give you a pass to do that. So yeah. then I got my brother on, I got a buddy on. So we had three nights full, you know, guys, you could. Trust not to come screw it up. Sure. But yeah, the Eric Jumper who works with us, he used to run a snow cat mm-hmm. in Vermont. Okay. And we've talked about that, how I think it's it's almost a requirement to to, sh- to be high if you work at a ski resort. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
there's so much. So yeah, the the directions my boss gave me was, he said, because I'd pick up, I'd get in the truck at like four o'clock. The day shift guy had gone home, and the day shift guy was this guy was sixty or seventy, just blazed all the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, every every day when you get in, check to just make sure there's no drugs in there, because mm-hmm. I don't want you to get fired for his oh, thing. Yeah, like yeah. one. And yeah. it always smelled so bad. Like one time I found, I don't know if it was raccoon poop or cat poop. Or, like there was crap in the cab from, I don't know what Blake did, but some animal had gotten in there with him. And the, um, I had a mouse living in my car one time and it pooped everywhere oh. that you, you don't get the smell out. Yeah. But it was, I think I talked to Eric the last time was they were, it was one of the big resorts. It might've been Vail Resort or something like that. They were talking about drug testing. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, uh, they just like laughed him out in the room. Like you're going to drug test. Are you, <laughs> like, you're, you're going to lose you're, you're, most of your people. You're not going to have anybody. Well, <laughs> as you ski around, like if you know where to go on the mountain, there are hot box huts like oh. on the mountain. Oh, that's a good tip. So, I mean, I've never smoked, but noted. Neither have I, but I know where they are. <laughs> so ski by, see a few skis or boards outside. And yeah. Okay, good. Catch a whiff. So, uh, so you grew up, you grew up in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Yep. Grew up here. And um, this is, it's technically a family business. Yeah. Yep. So who so, in your family? I guess, what's the, what's the history of Wheeler? So history of Wheeler. So there's, there's been a cat dealer in Utah since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went from the Robinson family to the Kershaw family. The Wheeler family came in. Um, I'd have to check the exact year, but J.K. Wheeler was a Studebaker dealer. So he'd been a sales rep for the cat dealer and kind of got burned out because he had basically the entire state of Utah. Mm-hmm. It was just him. So he left, became a Studebaker dealer. Years later, he had the chance to come back and buy into the dealership. So it became Wheeler Kershaw. And then uh, Walter Kershaw's son, who was supposed to come into the dealership, was killed in World War II. Hmm. And Walter kind of lost his passion for it, and J.K. ended up buying him out. My grandpa was a cement contractor, and he got tired of doing that and answered a newspaper ad to come work at Wheeler as a floor salesman. Hmm. So he started working here, and um, that was in 1956. And then my dad and uncle started working here, too. Uh, My grandpa ultimately became partners with JK's son, Don Wheeler, who became a minority partner. And when Don and my grandpa decided to retire, my dad and his brothers were able to buy them out. Hmm. And so uh, that was in 1996. And so that's how it transitioned over to the Campbell family. But when they bought him out, they asked Don if they could continue to use the Wheeler name because mm-hmm. it has such great brand equity, such good name recognition. And he said his only request was that they don't do anything to damage the name. Sure. And so we've kept it at Wheeler and we have no intent to change it to Campbell machinery or, or anything like that. It's got such good brand recognition and such a good name as Wheeler. We'll just keep it as that. And it transitioned to you and Brian so back in 2018, we took over the day-to-day operations, mm-hmm. and then we bought them out in 2020. So just uh, briefly explain, you touched on uh, Brian. You know, he chose to be in the business. Then you chose to be in the business. 
you guys are both here. How have you guys split split up? You know the the um, the tasks that that are running a company like this. Yeah. So Brian and I are cousins. His dad retired um, quite a bit before my dad did. And so as we went through the continuity process, um, Caterpillar gave us gave the green light to either one of us. And as dealer principal. As dealer principal. And so, you know, they told my dad and my other uncle who was still involved, you know, you guys choose. And they turned around and came to us and said, you guys choose and let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, not what we were expecting, but said, great. And it was about a 20-minute conversation. And we just looked at, you know, what our strengths, weaknesses, interests, and overall what's going to be best for the company. And so... You know, a lot of my interest is on the the strategic growth and investing side. Brian is phenomenal at managing the day-to-day business of Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the route we went. And, um, you know, as a result, you know, we're very high performing as a cat dealer. And, you know, and, and that's what allows everything else that we do, all the investments, the acquisitions, and the other pieces that we're able to bolt on really work. And so, you know, he's been... You know, he's involved in the other businesses uh, to a degree, but his focus really is primarily on running the cat business, which, you know, gives us what we need to keep going and growing. Sure. So it's, it's, and it's cool to, I've learned in business, you, you just, you need other people that are good at what you're not good at. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's essential. You, you have to split up, uh, you have to split things up. You can't take on everything or else it's, it's probably doomed. I've seen people do it successfully, but there's a clear ceiling to that. It's just not, I, it's, and, and even if you, even if you can do it successfully, a lot of times you're just so stressed out and you're just doing so much. It's just not even fun. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. And you know, we, we've said multiple times and I believe this wholeheartedly, we couldn't do what we're doing with Wheeler and the other businesses. If it was just one of us, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have, I'd say probably an unfair advantage having the two of us here. And it's worked really, really well. Perfect. How can you explain the succession planning just briefly? Yeah. Because you need, as a dealer, you need a succession plan. Yeah, you do. Uh, Caterpillar is very uh, tight on that and, and for good reason. Yeah. You know, it's, you look at their dealerships and the cost of poor continuity is massive. If they have to go find a new dealer or, you know, do a turnaround, it's big. Mm-hmm. And, and so you don't see dealerships change hands very often. They typically go to, go down family to family. Now, if the dealer doesn't have anyone who can come up next, you know, then yeah, they, they would look to sell. But we started our continuity process back in, well, Brian and I got pulled in back in 2006, but my dad and uncles wow. have been planning on planning it well before that. And in 2006, we, we sat down with them and I had an older brother working here at the time and we met, Kat was there as well. And they just talked through the business. Here's what it does. Here's how it all works. Um, and if you want a chance to work here, here's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And they had put together a rule of, well, a list of rules for potential equity holders in the company. And so it was requirements on education, on outside work experience, how you perform in the dealership. Um, they were very clear that we're not going to create a position for you. Um, you can move up as you prove yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a role, you have to excel in that role. 
and you'll be advanced based on merit. Wow. And then there's no passive ownership. So you don't have anyone that owns stock and doesn't work here. Hmm. So that keeps, you know, the focus on growing the business. So they laid that out in 2006. And how old were you? I was 22. So you're pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was kind of, I, 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 I knew I was interested, but you know, it was, it was kind of this eye-opening experience. And, and then they said, look, you got three or four years to figure out what you want to do. I think it was three years. So it was uh, May of 2009, May 31st, 2009. They needed an answer. Are you in or are you out? Mm-hmm. And they said, if there's anything else you think you want to do, go check it out. Go try it. And if there's something you would rather do more, go do it. You know, and, and it, it's interesting that, you know, there was never this huge amount of pressure from the family to come work here. It was always, if you want to do it, then here's what you have to do. And you, you could have a chance, but it wasn't ever like, Hey, you really should do this. Mm-hmm. And so Brian was already working here. He knew he wanted to be here. So he was in, uh, my older brother decided he wanted to go down the engineering route. So he left and did that. And he's been very successful. He's 3d printing rockets in California now and loves what he does. Sure. And, um, I kind of bounced around for a bit. I knew I liked it a lot. Um, and I worked here on and off, but you know, I, I always had that thought of, well, what if there's something else out there that's better? I didn't know what that was, but I was always interested in the tech industry and entrepreneurship. And so I kind of worried like, well, what if I miss out on something else? But I never, I never knew what that was. So finally, um, you know, I, I had to make a decision. So I said, well, I know I love it. I'm going to go for it. If, if I'm terrible at it, if I don't like it, I can get out, but I can't get in mm-hmm. if I don't get in now. So came in and it's been everything I hoped for and more. And so, so yeah, they laid it out. Um, and then from when I came in, you know, we worked our way up through different roles and, you know, eventually got to where cap passed off on our succession plan. It's, and it's interesting too, how you have to earn it because I guess that's in, it's in Kat's best interest to make sure the dealer succeeds and does very well. Yeah. So they need somebody that is going to get after it. Yeah. To, to, to pass it on to. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in the roles that Brian and I came up through, they were the core operational roles. It wasn't go be your dad's assistant. It yeah. was, you know, get into the guts of the business and, and really do it. The, the job that was probably the most beneficial was being the credit manager. Mm. and working with customers to, you know, figure out how to help them pay their bills. And and that let me really see inside their business and how they operate. It's a really hard job. It's a thankless job. Not one I would want to do again, but that was by far the most beneficial job that I had. And I'll probably come back to that because you've talked a lot about how construction business owners don't always operate a business very effectively. Right. But, and there's a lot of opportunity there. What, what, how old were you when you started working here? Very first job was right out of high school. So 2002, uh, 18, and I was working with the maintenance crew. So sweeping gutters, digging sprinkler lines, mm-hmm. unclogging toilets, stuff like that. And then from there, I mean, almost over like 15 years, you rotate through all different types of roles and really get to see the business from an operational standpoint. Yeah. So I had some time away from the business, just trying different things. Mm -hmm. I had a a painting company. I worked at a ski resort, did worked in medical supplies, just kind of different things, seeing what I wanted to do. But 
So I, I came out through the sales and rental side of the business. Brian came out through the parts and service side of the business. Hmm. And so, yeah, you, we'd rotate through these roles, you know, every two or three years. But while we were in those, we had to really excel and, and prove ourselves that, you know, it wasn't, you're not just there to do the status quo. You got to make big improvements. Hmm. Can you explain just very high level how a cat dealer works? Because it's Caterpillar, big brand, sells lots of equipment, but it's because of the dealer network that right. I think it has the strength it does. And and that's why people, I mean, I, I ask a lot of people, you know, why'd you buy this machine? Why'd you buy that machine? I, I'm just curious. Mm. It's almost always dealer support, dealer support, dealer support. So can you just explain how, how a cat dealer works? Yeah. So we have a sales and service agreement with Caterpillar. We're not a franchise. We're not owned by cat in any way. We're an independently owned dealership with a sales and service agreement and the relation I, I can't stress enough how important the relationship between cat and the dealers is because that that contract's cancelable within 90 days if, really? if things went south no kidding huh. but you look at you know we just had our 70th anniversary as a dealer mm -hmm. and so you think cancelable within 90 days but we've been doing this for 70 years yeah. other dealers have been going for 90 years or 100 years yeah i was just at yancey the other day i guess they're the oldest are, are they yeah yeah over 100 years yeah, well, I know Quinn just had 100 years. Yeah, Quinn um, too. Cashman just had 90 years. Peterson's up there. Yeah. Yeah, so these dealers have been around for a really long time. And and so the way it works is you have a dealer principal who is the majority owner of the dealership. And then from there, the the organizational structure can vary. Sometimes there's a COO. Sometimes uh, the, the president or the dealer principal is very involved, sometimes not as involved. But you have... You, we break, basically break it down into sales, rental, parts, and service. Those are the four core areas. And the goal is to, you know, populate the market with good equipment, but then go capture the sales and or the parts and service business afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we do that right, our customers are better off for it. They're, they're, they're more operational. They're more profitable. They're, they're safer. They're up and going more. And so the the four areas of the business have to work really closely together um one thing that we've done is really make sure that their goals are aligned and their objectives are aligned so it's not just the sales group looking out for their own sales it's well what can they do to help parts grow mm -hmm. or service grow or and vice versa and so like for example we have an internal campaign where you know, we promote to cut our employees that you sell the second, anyone can sell a machine the first time, but can you sell them a second machine? And you only do that if you support it the right way and mm. the customer has a good experience with it. Yeah. So we have all these, we have these four groups that work together and, you know, we got our parts warehouse that supports both our customers. They can buy parts directly from us or they support our uh, service department, getting the parts out for the repairs. Um, sales and rental work hand in hand. So a uh, customer can buy a machine or they can rent a machine or they can rent to own a machine. But then we always try to tie them back to parts and service. And so, you know, they're, they're, you know, obviously multiple layers through the dealership. Um, and the, the lower you go, the more specific they get in what their roles are in one of those four areas. Now with, I guess, cat going back to that license agreement, you guys, as a dealer, you're the only one that can sell, that has new CAD equipment within in our, the territory. Yeah, within our defined geographic territory. Yeah. So all new CAT goes through us. And genuine parts yep. and all that. Yeah, genuine parts. So so yeah, 
it's cap parts and machines mm-hmm. go through us. And, you know, it, it works well because those defined lines help us have a really good relationship with the surrounding cat dealers. Now, you know, legally, technically we're competitors, so we don't share pricing information. We don't share customer lists. We don't collaborate on, you know, let's go compete against, you know, dealer X. We mm-hmm. can't do that, but, yeah. you know, we'll share best practices. We'll sell machines back and forth if needed. Um, but yeah, we have really good relationships with them all. So it's a great relationship and, you know, they, you know, where their family businesses, the relationships often go back decades. Hmm. So it's really good. It's really unique. It's pretty cool. I, I'm, and I'm a huge fan of the dealer network because it, it works really well. Caterpillar's done a very nice job building that network and maintaining that network over, like you said, sometimes a century. Because mm-hmm. I feel like that's where some of the other struggle is there's not a consistent network across the board. So it'll be really strong in one region, but then a company will go operate in another region and they don't have the support they need over there. So they have to go to somebody else. Whereas mm-hmm. CAT, it's, it's pretty consistent across the board. If you go into a CAT dealer, most of the time, you know what you're going to go get. Right. And and a lot of that is due to the the expectations that CAT puts on us. Mm-hmm from a performance standpoint. So, you know, we measure, you know, we have a metric called on time in full. How many parts do we have when the customer needs it basically? Or how quickly can we get those? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's much more than just measuring machine market share or parts market share. It's how well do we perform operationally? And CAT has a role in that. And they say, well, here's where you should be and we'll benchmark you against other dealers. And you know, that really helps us raise the bar. The other benefit of the dealers versus, you know, if Cat were to try to go direct, and this is, there's a, there's a really good article from the Harvard Business Review back in the 1980s by Don Feitz, who was the, the chairman back then. It's called Make Your Dealers Your Partners. And in that, he talks about the benefits of having a local presence. Mm. So we know what's going on in our markets. We know what's going on with specific customers, much better than someone in Chicago or Peoria or North Carolina could. Yeah. So we have that real boots on the ground approach. We know what's going on with our customers. We know what their objectives are. We know what their challenges are. If we screw up, if Cat screws up, we know why. And we can go try to, to fix that rather than just hope it doesn't happen again. Well, and that's, and that's the interesting thing. Like if you compare equipment to cars, for example, it's like Tesla is doing great selling direct to customer because a car is a car and it doesn't, it does the same job in California that it does in Texas. Right. Whereas heavy equipment, it's very dependent on where you're operating. Very, very, very dependent on where you're operating. And like this whole valley is so different to Denver to Phoenix, to Los Angeles, to, mm-hmm. you know, where Cashman is up in um, Elko, it, it, it's entirely different. And those relationships really do matter. And it's, you're supporting thousands, thousands of customers. And within those thousands of customers, that's tens of thousands of relationships at any one point in time between your people and their people mm-hmm. that all have to be going right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that the the relationships that you build are the most well i i would say that that is the most important thing that we do and you know particularly with our customers and you know we have sales reps who have been here for 40 plus years mm-hmm. and 
they've had those relationships with customers for 40 years. We have one who, you know, one, I remember one day when I was the sales manager, he rolls in and he walks over to the sales desk and says, you know, we need three, five, three twenties for Ames. Just got the order. And one of our young sales reps was looking at him just like, what, how do you just get that? And I told him, I said, look, he's been doing this for 40 years. Yeah. He goes to breakfast every Friday with their equipment manager. And he's been doing that for decades. So it's not like he just all of a sudden is getting these orders. He's mm -hmm. built that relationship for years and years and years. Yeah. And, and that's what it takes to be successful. And, you know, and, and that's what gets you through the good times, the bad times when there's a product quality issue, when there's a, you know, issue on our end, you know, if we don't get the part to them in time or we get them the wrong part or we can't get field service out in time, you know, we'll have our ups and downs and our bumps and bruises, but that's what allows us to resolve it and continue the relationship. Sure. Now, so that's Wheeler. But that's only part of the total business. So you have Campbell Companies, which is a holding company you guys created mm. to bring all of the family of companies in one one group, so yeah. to speak. When did, okay, great, you're selling cat equipment, Wheeler. When did Wheeler start acquiring other businesses? And what's the point of acquiring other businesses at a cat dealership? So we, we set the goal um, to, to really grow our, our non-cap business back in about 2016, 2017. And the reason for it isn't to dilute or, you know, go away from cat is, you know, to, to be accretive to the cap business. Mm -hmm. And so we started making acquisitions in 2018. And we go in and typically acquire them as as Wheeler or through SciTech. So we have our SciTech dealership, which we have outside of Wheeler. So it was one of those two. And we, as we started doing these acquisitions, um, I didn't like the structure where they were all underneath Wheeler. It was putting a lot of strain on our corporate services group. So accounting, HR, safety, IT, but it also was stacking liability underneath Wheeler. So every company comes with its own set of liabilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if Wheeler owns them, then the liability of any of those other companies rolls up to Wheeler. Sure. And so it was kind of those two issues. It was managing liability, but it also wasn't a sustainable growth structure the way we had it. And so we restructured the company in 2020 and created Campbell Companies as a holding company. So we moved all our corporate services up there. So that's all done by one group. That way, none of the operating companies have to worry about their own accounting department, their own HR department, or their mm -hmm. own IT department. It's done uniformly across all the companies and then each company is its own underneath Campbell companies and that way if we do an acquisition we just plug in plug it in and go plug it in and go or you put it underneath whatever acquiring company did it so um the the rationale for that is you know Wheeler has a finite market there's only so much cat equipment that's going to be sold here even if we are firing all cylinders there's only so much that we can actually sell but when you look at what our customers do, there's a ton of stuff that they do beyond just buying and operating equipment. And so we've we focused on th our three core industries of construction, mining, and energy and said, mm -hmm. well, what else can we do in those spaces? And so that's led us to um, acquiring a another Trimble dealership. So we bought the Trimble Geospatial dealership for Utah, Nevada. That's Monson Engineering. We bought a small rental house um, and we've kept that branded separately from Wheeler because it 
works really well with small contractors, someone who needs a skid steer for two hours or half a day. Wheeler, does, we, it doesn't work real well with those customers. Yeah. But Diamond Rental does. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, we're getting to know those customers and we're converting them to Wheeler customers while they're still Diamond customers and still bring crossing that over. Uh, we, we broke Crushing Out into its own division or its own company with uh, Gamecos. We basically put our non-cat distribution into a company and that lets us go beyond our Caterpillar boundaries. Uh, so we're not, you know, stuck to that. Uh, we've, we did a joint venture with Cashman Equipment uh, for SciTech and mining technology. So all our technology is under one umbrella now. Hmm. And we can leverage the strengths of the two teams that we had across two territories. We've had really good results with that. Um, I don't know if you want me to talk about all of them, but... It, oh, that's good. But the, the idea is that the... You know, we're doing, we're supporting our customers in a lot more ways that they operate, in a lot more areas that they operate while staying true to the core of what we do. And so there are a couple of rules that we put in place as we do this is one that we will never jeopardize what Wheeler does. That's the core of our business. We will always keep that safe. But everything that we acquire or invest in has to be accretive to Wheeler. It has to be able to stand on its own, but it has to make Wheeler better. So that can be improving capacity in the shop. That can be improving machine market share. That can be bringing new customers to Wheeler. And then they have to be financially stable on their own or have a pathway to get financially stable on their own. So Wheeler's not propping them up. It's interesting too how the variety of customers you guys support is pretty incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's some guy renting a skid steer for two hours to spread out some gravel in his front yard of his house. DIY. I'm going to do it myself. I want a Mm -hmm. machine. I mean, who doesn't? And then, you know, you have Rio Tinto up on the hill running one of the biggest mines in the world Mm -hmm. and then everything in between. I'm not saying Rio Tinto, you know, is the biggest, but there's certainly a big, a big player out there. Right. And then in everything in between, and it's, it's just amazing. The, the variety of things you guys need to do mm-hmm. in and, between that. And that's, that's part of the benefit of each company standing alone because mm-hmm. they can focus on what they do really well, where if we were trying to have the same group manage that homeowner who needs a skis here for two hours and the mining trucks up at Kennecott, it's not going to work. Yeah. So I, I'm a big believer in having people specialize in what they do and do it extremely well. And, uh, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with, uh, when we were with Rich and talking about how you get the best return on your investment in a person or in a business. And you do that by having them do what they are best at and specialized at. So Diamond Rental is really good at working with those small contractors and homeowners. Great. Let's have them continue to do that. Let's not worry about them trying to rent to an old castle or an Ames or, you know, these heavy civil contractors. That's not what they do. Yep. That, that's not how, what they're built for. Same way Wheeler's not built to handle those small contractors. So you do what you're good at. This other company's going to do what they're good at. And then when there's crossover, there's a benefit. And, and that's great. And we will absolutely capitalize on every crossover opportunity that we have. But your core operations are specialized on what you do really well. Makes sense. What are the, what are the threats to a cat dealer? Cause it's, I mean, it's, you guys have been going for 70 plus years. You're in a really good spot mm-hmm. and you're the only one. I mean, in theory, it's, it's somewhat of a, 
monopoly. It's not. You still compete with people, but you're the only one that sells Cat. And Cat's a pretty powerful brand, and it's a pretty good position in the market to be in. Right. What are the threats to, like, what do you think about, like, hey, these are the things that we need to look out for? Yeah, the the biggest threat that I would say we have is stagnation and complacency. Mm-hmm. And having that mindset of, yeah, we are a cat dealer. Who's going to come in and beat us? Well, you know, there are cat dealers that aren't the highest performing in their markets. Sure. Um, and and so we have to be constantly evolving and saying, well, what can we do differently? What do we need to do differently? Both to address the competitive standpoint, but to make our customers better at what they do. And so the things I worry about are the non-traditional competitors and you know so we we compete against Komatsu, deer volvo bobcat um and you know we you know they win their share of the market we win our share of the market but we know how to go head to head they know how to go head to head with us Mm -hmm. what's new is we have competitors like sony who's coming in and you know their their product quality is vastly improved Mm -hmm. they don't have the dealer network that the traditional players in this market do, but they're going to be looking to do that. Are they going to do it the same way? Maybe they won't. Well, and they're leaning on the rental companies to do it. Right. To get into at least get market share, which right. is a pretty fascinating model. Yeah. So it's a different model than what's been done before. So yeah. historically to become a dealer, you had to be very, very well capitalized. You had to, there was all kind of this big checklist of what you had to do to start selling equipment in an area. Yeah. Sony and some of those other competitors have blown that up. They're saying, we're going to go a different route into market. And if we're not ready for that, then, you know, that's a big risk for us. Um, it's kind of like online part sales or e-commerce. Um, you know, Amazon is a huge risk to us. And, you know, we have to have the right approach to e-commerce because, you know, we're not competing. You know, the the customer experience that people are looking for is is very different than the traditional market that we compete in. They're not comparing Cat's e-commerce platform to Kamasu's to Deer's. They're saying, I like shopping on Amazon. Yeah. And so you better have an Amazon-like experience for me or else I'm going to go get my parts at Amazon. Yeah. And so we have non-traditional competitors that are coming into our market and we have to be ready for that. And we have to know how to compete with them or figure out how to compete with them or else we're going to be left behind. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest risk is us just saying, look, we've we've been in this market for 70 years. You know, we're good. We're cat. We're good. Well, this is this is what's very frustrating with me about the equipment manufacturers. They they all benchmark themselves against each other and they're missing the point because I get into a machine, the user experience in a piece of it is just not even close to the user experience of other things I'm used to, like my computer, like my iPhone. And that's what I'm benchmarking it against. Mm-hmm. And so I get in and try to do something in the computer, like set up grade control on the new next-gen excavator. It's amazing technology. But the user experience frustrates me because it's not comparable to something that they're not comparing it to. I don't. I, it, maybe it's far beyond the other manufacturers. I don't even, I have no, no idea. But I'm benchmarking, benchmarking it off my iPhone that mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable with, that makes perfect sense to me, that Apple invests hundreds of millions of dollars into from a UX UI standpoint. And it's, it's very frustrating because it's like, this is not 2022 right. and, and 
we need to go beyond that because, and I get it. It's like the old timers don't care, but me, people that, that are around me, I made this joke about these, this gets your radios and just how just, they're just old school. It wasn't all the old timers reaching out saying, yeah, you're right. It was all the younger guys saying, yeah, you're, you're perfectly right. <laughs> well, that's the future of the market. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think Tesla's a perfect example. You know, they came in yeah. and flipped the car industry on its head. Mm-hmm. And why couldn't that happen to us? Yeah. And, and so, you know, if we sit back and think, well, where else are you going to go? Well, there are places, plenty of places for people to go to buy a machine. The, the thing we look at is it kind of the guiding principle behind how we've grown and our acquisitions is focusing on the customer experience and making sure that we are their best option. We want to be their most profitable option, their safest option, and most productive. Because if we do that, they won't go anywhere else because they, mm-hmm. they can't afford to and they don't want to yeah. because it's so easy. But we have to change how we look at things because we've, we've always looked at our business as we sell a product and we sell a service. And it's really interesting as I ask people in our company, as we ask people at our suppliers, whether it's CAT or Mezzo or some of our other suppliers, if a customer calls, so here's a question I pose. Customer calls asking for an excavator or asking for a hose or a filter or for field service. What are they calling for? And typically the response I get is they want good service. They want someone to take care of them. No, they don't. They want a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. Just so happens that we're the best way to do that right now. Sure. But as soon as someone else comes along and figures out how to put a hole in the ground a better way or figures out a way to do what they're trying to do without putting a hole in the, a hole in the ground, we're out. Yeah. So we better focus on being a solutions provider rather than a a product or services company. Well, and I feel like these these next generations, they put less weight on because I've had this relationship with this company for the past 15 years, I don't need to go look anywhere else. We've just been trained to always be looking for a better deal elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And and it goes to employment too. It's everybody I talked to some guy Yesterday, they came to work for us. Why'd you come to work for us? Well, I'm, you know, I, I had a good gig, but I'm always looking for a new challenge. I'm always looking for something better. That's the whole mentality of this next generation. And even if I've been supported consistently, I am looking for other options out there that are potentially better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, but, but before that, like my dad's generation, they're going to go to work for the same company for 20, 20 years and not think twice about it. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have to understand that and adapt to it. Yeah. Because if we don't, we're going to be left out in the cold. So that goes into now you, you, you know, acquiring these other businesses, but still, you know, steel, diesel, traditional type companies. Then you start getting into the world of technology. Yeah. When did, and I know, you know, SciTech and that, that's, that's a lot of technology. But when did you start looking at pure technology plays and getting involved in those? So the first one was uh, with Busy Busy, and I want to say it was 2015 or 2016 that we did that, and and we're still invested there. the The reason that came about was back when I was the credit manager. You know, my job was to to work with customers who couldn't pay us, and figure out how to do it. And you know, it wasn't didn't want to go out and bust kneecaps or anything like that. But it was sit down with them and say, okay, how can we help you? What can we do? And 
I asked the question, the question that came, kept coming up to me that I was asking was, well, why is this such a problem? Why can't people pay? And over time I realized it's because they don't know how to manage their business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember one customer who they, they took out a crushing spread and the guy was, he'd been crushing rocks for 40 years. He can make whatever you want with whatever crusher you wanted. He decided to go out on his own. His wife's his bookkeeper. Sounds working for him. Kind of the, you know, a very common story in the construction world. So he takes one crusher out. He's doing okay. And then, you know, big contract comes up, million dollar contract comes up and he goes and wins it, but he has to take out a second spread. And all of a sudden he is underwater and owes us a big chunk of money. And so I go meet with, with him and his wife and say, okay, let's, let's walk through this. And I said, so just tell me, what's your monthly operating cost? I don't know. Okay. What's your fuel cost? Well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And there were all these costs that they didn't know. And it, you know, it really hit home that he knew how to make the, the product. He knew how to crush, but he didn't know how to operate the business. And so that's where we started to say, well, let's go build a solution for this. And we were about to do a JV with a development company and build our own when I met Isaac at Busy Busy and realized, hey, he's working on the same thing. Let's chip in with him. And the focus there was really on people because people is your largest expense. You know, we did a study once where we looked at the cost of a 320 over its life and looking at, you know, what are all the different expenses and the cost of the operator is by far the largest expense of that machine over its life. The, the, the initial purchase price is nothing mm -hmm. compared to the people cost. Mm. So we said, okay, let's help people get their people costs in line. And that's, that's what led to our investment investment in busy, busy. And from there, we started going down this tech route. And our focus in the tech world and in venture investing has been on solving problems that either we face as a dealership or that our customers face. And so that's kind of been our guiding principle. And that's how we found different deals to, to invest in and pursue. And there's a lot that we look at that we don't invest in, um, but, that, but that's how we got in. And it's it's just an interesting. It, it aligns very well with what you said about how it supports Wheeler, and that if we don't, if you guys don't figure help your customers figure out the people problem that they're facing right now, this workforce problem, then then what? You know, as a cat dealer, you're selling machines that they can't put people. I, I mean, I just I just talked to someone the other day. They have a few hundred trucks sitting, mm -hmm. yeah. just just sitting, and they I think it's like. They've like, you know, over a thousand trucks and only 800 drivers or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. We have customers every day telling us that, you know, if they had the machines or sorry, if they had the operators, they'd buy more machines. Mm -hmm. There, It's not a shortage of work right now. There's no shortage of work to be done. Yeah. But they don't have people to put in the, in the, in the loaders and the trucks and the excavators. And so, yeah, that's going to impact us because they don't buy anything from us if they can't put people in. At the same time, we can't hire enough technicians right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, you know, if we hired every people for every position that we have posted right now, we'd increase our workforce by 5%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just a really big problem right now. And so it's your biggest expense, but you also can't operate without it. Yeah. I think go to the bathroom real quick. All right. So, so technology following our bathroom break, my bathroom break. Thanks, 75 hard. Um, busy, busy first. 
play in purely technology. Like I said, you yep. SciTech, lots of technology there, Monson. So it's not that, and just Wheeler in general, there's technology at play within the business. Right. Busy, busy. And then there's, you've done a few deals at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So we followed up busy, busy with modern and uh, they were acquired by Caterpillar last year, but we were uh, really their first seed money. Um, and, you know, that one worked out well because it was a, a product that was geared. They were starting out looking at the automotive market and basically it's the ability to text between the dealer and the customer and, yeah. you know, get work orders approved, send, yeah. you know, picture or video updates. You know, it, we were able to invest in them, but then bring basically partner with them to mirror our process and say, okay, here's how modern would be successful with a cat dealer or with a dealer. And then they took that template and ran with it and brought on board a bunch of cat dealers, a bunch of Bobcat and Volvo dealers, and then cat bought them. Um, invested in Typhoon, which is an employee engagement platform, which has been phenomenal for our safety program. Mm -hmm. And just our our employee communication as a whole. Um, we invested in you guys. Uh, we've invested in a company called Icon 3D, which is digital parts warehousing and 3D parts printing. We did um, Icon Technologies, which is 3D house printing. And then we're tied in with Iron Spring, which is a venture capital group that spun out of whole ventures. It's got a bunch of cat dealers and Trimble involved in it as well. So, you know, we, we don't have, you know, necessarily a state of objective in how often we invest or, or what we invest in, but basically it has to solve a problem for us or for our customers. Yeah. That's what we look for. And, you know, we're not always out deal hunting, but, you know, kind of as they come up and we take a look at them and you know, make a decision from there. And I, I haven't talked about it on the podcast or really publicly at this point, I've hinted at it here or there, but so we had, we, we went three years in business with no outside capital whatsoever. We, it was, it was, I, you, you don't really understand it when you're living through it, but you look back on it. Like, I don't know how the hell we did that. Cause it was, it was tough. Um, and, and not even, a, not even a, a bank loan or anything. Cause I was just a kid with no credit, no house, n nothing, nothing to put up that a bank would. So it was just us making us, making everything up, cash flowing it. And then beginning of 2020, Randy Blunt came on board, helped us out financially, gave us the first cash infusion into our business that allowed mm -hmm. us to really grow significantly. Last year, we used that money to go invest in leaders. And then once we put leaders in the marketplace, we saw an opportunity for more software options. And, and there's, there's just, there's a lot of opportunity out there that leveraging our unique position, we can capitalize upon. So to go build a software business, especially in the construction industry, you need additional outside capital. And we said last fall, hey, we need to go find outside investment. And we know a lot of people, but we wanted to make sure we were partnering with the right individual company whoever it was mm -hmm. that like you said you know brings in more than just money there's a lot of places you can get money but we needed more than that more than just a dollar uh so we had three groups we met with and mine expo met with you originally mm -hmm. 
in Vegas, unfortunately. I just, I can't stand Vegas. <laughs> um, but started talking with you guys as far as, hey, maybe, maybe Wheeler, maybe Campbell Companies is the right fit for us. And December, we ended up, yeah, you guys are the right fit. So raised that series seed mm-hmm. fund round combined with Randy Blunt. So Randy Blunt and Campbell Companies bought into BuildWit, which then gave us the cash we've used to go very aggressively expand over the past two months. Right. Um, why? I, I mean, I came to you with, we had some business history. You'd seen what we had going on. You'd, you'd been following along. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't cold turkey, but it was also kind of a half-baked idea. And it's still, we're still working through it right now. I mean, we're, yeah. we're big picture half-baked idea. What we were going to do next wasn't so, I mean, that was pretty much, hey, this is our next play, but there's a lot more opportunity here. And what is that? Um, what was appealing to us when you were looking at us originally? When we invest... We have to invest in solving a problem. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff you can invest in, but is that really going to, you know, pay off? And so we look at solving problems. And you had identified the same problem that we had. And, you know, and it's not a, a secret, but you were one of the first people to really articulate that this is a problem in the industry and we have an idea of how to solve it, how to approach it differently. Because there are a lot of people trying to solve it, but a lot of the methods that are being used are the same ones that have been used for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And we got to do something differently. And that's what you brought to the table. And yeah, it wasn't fully baked, but it was, it was the idea that, hey, we're going to try this differently. We're going to take a different approach. The other aspect was that build wit and you have a lot of credibility in the industry. And if you speak, people listen. So one of the challenges that oh, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, <laughs> and and I won't say what people do when they yeah. listen. Maybe they like it, maybe yeah. they don't. But uh-huh. no. So one of the challenges with technology coming into the construction world is that, I mean, we have an advantage in, in a lot of ways where we don't have to go determine what the new technology is to to come into our, our industry. It's already been developed. So Silicon Valley is ahead of us by five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. So we can go cherry pick the things that we want from that. The risk is that they've already developed them. What if they bring them before we're able to, to capitalize on that? Correct. The challenge that Silicon Valley has, though, is the lack of credibility. They don't know our industry. They don't, you know, it's an outsider trying to come in. And so that's one of the challenges that they have. And so we looked at is, well, you have the credibility. If we can go get the right people on board to help us with the tech side, then we may have something really special. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really sold us on it was um, while we were meeting with you and Dan, it was me and Brian, and Brian texts one of our customers who, uh, you know, he's a, a, the guy is just runs a phenomenal business. People, you know, he talks, people listen. And Brian texts him and said, hey, have you heard of Aaron Witt and Bill Witt? And he responds, yeah, yeah, I follow him. I love everything they do. And I was like, okay, well, if, JP is listening, then that's important. Mm-hmm. And then you and Dan walked through our shop and all our techs recognized you and knew who you were. And it, it really kind of hit home the, the, the platform that you have. And so if we can build the right product to bring people into the industry, you have the platform to get it out. Yeah. And that is unique. That's 
Silicon Valley doesn't have that. They, someone in Silicon Valley could build the exact same product we do, but if they don't have that, uh, that megaphone to get it out, they're not going to succeed. Mm -hmm. So that was really important to us. And so, you know, I, the other thing is, you know, a willingness to say, well, we don't have it all figured out, but let's go try it. And, you know, where people get in trouble is when they say, well, I know how to do it and my way is the only way. And what, what I've seen over the last couple of months is a willingness to say, we think this is the right way to do it. And then a week later say, well, no, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Yeah. And if you're willing to change and adjust your approach to things, then eventually you find the right path. And so, you know, I look at where we've come since December in terms of what the product offering will look like on the software side. It's come a really long way, but it's been a result of going down a lot of different paths, realizing, hey, maybe not that route. Let's turn back and go do something else. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a problem to be solved. Someone wants to do it differently. They have the platform to do it. Let's give it a go. And the biggest thing with this is it's our biggest problem. It's our customer's biggest problem. And if we're not going to invest in solving our biggest problem, what in the world would we ever invest in? Sure. That, that's kind of the core of it. If you don't solve in your own in solving the biggest problem, then why invest in anything? And I was, I was thinking about the other day. The funny thing about all this is I like, I'm, I'm a big fan of Avon Chouinard Patagonia, mm -hmm. regardless of what you think about the company and the political stances, you have to respect what that guy's done. He went from just total dirt bag, you know, selling rugby jerseys as climbing gear out of the, out of his trunk mm -hmm. because he needed to finance his climbing addiction and then building this massive company. Yeah. that he still wholly owns. Yeah. It's 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 crazy. And then the guy, the guy's involved in the business, but also fly fishes six months out of the year, and he's just a, he's a legend. He calls himself a reluctant businessman. I feel like I'm, uh, like a reluctant tech executive or tech founder, or whatever the hell I am now, because it's, I didn't. And you made this point when we were working through our deck a few days ago. This wasn't ever the point. I didn't start BuildWit to go, wow, there's this huge software play here. Let's go build some software and go make a ton of money because that's, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I'm here in Silicon Valley and I'm going to go get some VCs behind me and we're going to go, we're going to go make, make just a fortune. Right. It was, let's go out and start telling stories about this industry and get the word out about this industry because I love it. And I think other people will love it too. They just haven't heard about it yet. And then through four years of trial and error and visiting job sites and having conversations and podcasting and making videos and employing people, great people that then go take it and make it into other things. We're here today. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty unique position that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's the opportunity is, Hey, we're kind of this, this middle ground. And we even have a leg up over like Caterpillar, for example, because Caterpillar Caterpillar has a lot of competitors out there and some people have opinions and they, some people love Caterpillar. Some people don't love Caterpillar and we need to go beyond that. We need to get everybody, whether they love Caterpillar or they don't love Caterpillar on the same team. Cause if we're on the same team, then we can actually go create significant change here. Mm -hmm. It's pretty neat. Yeah. It, it's, it's a universal problem, you know, regardless of the color of your iron, you know, Ford truck, you know, Ford, Chevy, Dodge, cat, Komatsu, deer, doesn't matter. Everyone has the same problem that no one has figured out how to solve yet. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and, you know, this isn't the only route that we're going to, 
you know, to try to solve this. We're working with, sure. with AED. Uh, we're working with CAT. We're working with other groups. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to take an all of the above approach to, to figure it out. Yep. But, you know, this is, I'd say, the most unique and concentrated approach that we have across all of those. It's, and to your point earlier, we have gotten really good at, hey, we don't have all the answers here. This is a really complex problem. And it's not as simple as we just need to talk more on social media about the industry and then problem solved. And that was my approach probably first year or two in business was, guys, I have this. Come on. Like, this is easy. Like, really? You don't see this? Like, we could do this. No problem. And then I just I got my ass kicked uh, a bunch of times over and learned, uh, no, I don't know any better than anybody else. Right. And I need to have a hell of a lot more humility and sit here and say, we don't have the solutions. We don't have everything figured out, but we're going to do our best. We're going to try to get everybody who is working on all these solutions on the same page and let's go at this together. And yeah. that's, um, it's just, uh, I think we're actually, we might be onto something. Dan and I always say, we have a conference room in our office named after this. This might work. We just kind of look at each other a little bit in disbelief. Like we'll come out of a meeting or see this product or, the other morning, you know, we had JP Donnell training 25 construction executives in Nashville on leadership, doing simulated combat, mm -hmm. former navies, like this guy's a stud and he's here because of us. And you have these moments like, huh, this, this might actually work. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, one of the common themes of entrepreneurship and successfully growing a business of there's that moment. Well, I shouldn't say that one there's a ton of moments where you're thinking well maybe this will work yeah i hope it does remember you know the you know when we were putting our holding company in place camel companies you know it was this massive change i mean it took a, a year and a half to figure out the structure how to do it legally you know and and you know strategically what was the right fit and so it was going live january 1st 2020 and you know I, i'd put so much time and effort into this. And even the week before, I'm in a boardroom with lawyers and bankers and sitting there thinking, what am I doing? Is this really the right thing to do? And I'm thinking, I just spent the last 18 months on this. Yeah. And it was kind of that thought of, well, I think it'll work. I hope it works. And, you know, now, you know, over two years later, it's worked phenomenally. Mm -hmm. But there's, I think, you know, for every good idea, there is that moment of, I think this will work. Kind of scared about it, but I think it'll work. Yeah. And you got to run with it. Well, we're excited to, excited to have all this going. It's been a lot of fun so far. So we're looking, I'm looking forward to the next few months because it's about to get really fun. Yeah. It's going to be pretty wild, you know, just seeing it all come together. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the things that's going to be exciting about it is seeing the industry support because, yeah. You know, everyone, like we said, everyone has the same problem. Everyone knows what the issue is. Everyone wants to solve it. And so I think if we can give people the opportunity to help solve it, I think people will come. And there are a ton of people and a ton of companies out there with great ideas, with great products, great services, but they're spread all over the place. Yeah. There's a, a lot of companies I've looked at that have great software, but they're kind of cornered in one market and no one knows about them. Mm -hmm. 
you know, let's get them in front of people. Let's get them in front of different companies that can really take advantage and get better operationally or financially. And so I think as the whole industry pulls together, I think we can see a lot of change. I mean, you talk a lot about the profit margins that contractors have and how they're not huge. Same with the dealers. You know, we don't have huge, huge profit margins. We're not Google or Adobe or Apple. And I think as we all get better at managing our business, at managing the little things, I think we can improve financially as a company. We can then reinvest that in our businesses for better benefits, better pay, better pay, um, do a lot of things that people are looking for and hope, you know, change the industry completely. Well, it's in everybody's best interest to have companies be more profitable yeah. in the industry because more profit. I mean, that's why, that's why the tech companies are such great places to work because they have that profit to invest in their people. It's, it, it helps everybody out. Everybody wins. It's not like, sure, a lot of people have gotten very wealthy off the technology companies and there's a lot of bankers out there and VCs and sure, there's, there's that and, and executives, mm-hmm. but the real beneficiaries of all of that are the consumers because they're able to make far better products and push it further and further and further. I think I've benefited from smartphones and I feel like most people have, for mm-hmm. example, uh, but then the people that work there because there's more opportunity, higher pay, better benefits, just it's just a better way of life in general. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think there's an education component that has to go along with the word profit because yeah. a lot of times people, I, I, and I, I, I don't say everyone, but people at times associate profits with greed or, you know, company owner lining their pocket. And what we've tried to do is educate everyone that profit is what you reinvest into the business. Mm-hmm. So that's what we use to go buy service trucks. <clears throat> That's what we use to build a new shop. That's what we use to, you know, double our parts inventory so we can take care of our customers better. Um, that's what we use to, you know, have better benefits. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the higher the profits, the better our profit margins are, the more we can do there. And everyone benefits. Sure. Well, and that's, I, I read the book, Conscious Capitalism. That's what reframed my thinking was, wow, you can have a business that does a lot of good in the world and makes a lot of money. And it's actually good if that business makes a lot of money because then they can take that money and do more good with it. Mm-hmm. That's the whole premise of conscious capitalism. So it's like the opportunity we have is, hey, we might actually be able to solve some of this problem or help solve it. And we can make money along the way. And if we make more money, we can go hire more people, expand our business, create more opportunity for more people. And that's, especially as a business owner, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, we. I look at it as, I mean, one of our core values is stewardship mm-hmm. and making sure that our company is well taken care of and our people are well taken care of. And so that means that 1,100 people can pay their mortgage every month, that they can put food on the table, that if their kid gets sick, they can go to the hospital, they can go see their doctor. They don't have to worry about, can we afford to have a baby or not? Yeah. Can we, you know, can we go on vacation? Can I send my kid to trade school or go to Harvard? I don't whichever one works for them. I don't care. I just want them to be able to do that. And that doesn't happen unless we're successful as a company sure. and reinvest in what we do. And I'm, I'm mostly going to reinvest, but I'm also going to buy machines and make them like barn animals every once in a while. You, you can do that. That That <laughs> is your prerogative. <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, appreciate you sitting down with us today. I was going to say thanks for stopping by, but we, Thanks for stopping we, by. We stopped by. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, if you could say that, we're at Wheeler today. So um, talk to you 
Ryan Goodfellow is coming on next, and then we're going to go check out the shop. Perfect. So, Jonathan Campbell, everybody. 